we are wrapping up our time in 2 Samuel. This time here in 2 Samuel, there's four chapters, and inside these four chapters, there's about six events which kind of serve as appendices for the reign of David. Six events, they may be a little bit out of chronological order, but the author of 2 Samuel here is telling us that these are important things to really look at when it comes to the life and the reign of David. There are three things. We read one of them. One of them has to do with giants in the land, giants that they had conquered in the Philistines and their ongoing battle. There's also a section on David the worshiper, and we know about David the worshiper from the Psalms. We know about the battles that have been fought with the Philistines. Today, I'm going to spend some extra time with this really interesting narrative and the justice that needed to be executed here amongst some really difficult situations. Let's pray. God, could the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this day? Holy Spirit, speak to us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bible or your app, I want to encourage you to follow along. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 21. I'm going to just talk about some of the details because it's a super interesting story. I'm going to talk about some of the details here, and we're going to pick it up here in verse 1, that there's a famine in the land, and it's a severe famine. It's taking three years, three years here, and, and, and back in the worldview of the ancient Middle East, they saw there was a direct connection between the actions of someone and really the result. And so if someone had land, and that land wasn't producing anything, they would think, gosh, maybe this person did something really wrong here. Maybe the land is stolen, and maybe that's why there's no blessing. And so when it came to situations of a national disaster, like a famine, the first place they were going to look was, where have we as a nation sinned? And maybe something our leader has done has caused this. And so, as they come in, they inquire of the Lord, and, and I'm reminded right away at the beginning of this passage that sometimes the bad things in, that happen in life, the things that are very difficult, bring us to our knees and call us to seek the face of God. And I know that sometimes in my own life, when things are going well, God is not the first person I look to, but when there's problems, believe me, I get on my knees and I go searching for God. Yeah. Amen to that? And so we're mindful of that, that there is a national crisis, and it has brought David and Israel to their knees. And in the process of inquiring what went wrong, what comes to them is the situation with the Gibeonites. In verse 2, we're reminded of, of two things. We're reminded of who are the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but a remnant of the Amorites. And it takes us all the way back to Joshua chapter 9. Do you remember the story with the Gibeonites? Joshua is conquering the land of Canaan. Joshua had come in and they had miraculously crossed the Jordan River. They had now battled against Jericho, the story of the walls falling down. They didn't even have to lift a spear and, and the walls came down for them. They had defeated the kings of Ai and now next was Gibeon. And the Gibeonites were very clever. They tricked Joshua and the people of Israel. 
They dressed up in a way that it looked like they had come from a faraway land. And they basically came saying, no, we've heard about your God and we want to make a treaty with you. They were very cunning and very smart. And the scriptures tell us in Joshua that the leaders of Israel were not very smart at that time. They established a treaty in the name of the Lord with the Gibeonites. And sure enough, they find out later that the Gibeonites are close by. They were tricked, but because they made the treaty in the name of the Lord, they needed to honor the treaty. And Joshua, at that point, says, okay, we'll honor the treaty, but, but the Gibeonites will be in a life of service to Israel. They basically would be their servants. And so in exchange for, for Israelite protection, they were submissive to the people of Israel. And the narrative clearly points out the cleverness of the Gibeonites and the fact that God's people, particularly Joshua and the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, did not seek the Lord in that decision. Amen. So somewhere along the line in verse 2, we see that something goes wrong. Saul, in his zeal, attempts to wipe out the Gibeonites and so we see hints of what had happened. We know that uh, in 1 Samuel chapter, in chapter 21 that Saul dealt very, very savagely with the priests at Noab. Remember that he had them all murdered and killed. We see that there's a level of zeal and ambition here with Saul. And, and, and we see that we don't know necessarily why Saul was upset. It could have been that he didn't like the Gibeonites. It could have been that he felt they were tricked and wrongfully treated. It could have been that the Gibeonites were in Benjamin territory and he was from the house of Benjamin. The scriptures don't tell us why, but they do tell us that he tried to eliminate this foreign group of people. What we do know about the Gibeonites is they were non-Jewish. They didn't have the same status or clout because they were servants of the Jews they may have had something that Saul wanted, and simply put, to put it in today's language, Saul was committing genocide. He was eliminating a group of people or attempting to eliminate a group of people that were living in Israel's territory. Verse 3 through 6 tell us the exchange between David and the Gibeonites. David says, what can we do for you? How can we make this matter right? so that you could bless the Lord, in other words, so this famine can end, so we could receive blessing for the Lord, and, and the Gibeonites are clever again. Very clever. They don't ask for compensation, which they could under Hebrew law. They don't ask for the compensation at all, but rather they cite Mosaic law and ask life for life. Turning to Leviticus 24, 19 through 21, which says this, anyone who kills a human shall be put to death. Anyone who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the inquiry to be suffered. Sorry, the, the injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. One who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, but one who kills a human being shall be put to death. You shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen, for I am the Lord your God. This would later be known to the church fathers as the lex talionis, 
which is the law of retaliation or the retaliation law. And it's often misunderstood. Because when people see an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, they immediately think revenge. But that was not the intent. The intent of this law was not revenge, but it was, it was actually to exact a level of justice for the person who had been wronged. So imagine a scenario where my ox is in the land and my ox takes out Kevin's son, okay? Kevin would be very, very upset and say, you know what, your ox took out my son, I'm going to take out your son and your daughter for that act, okay? That would happen to me, and in return, I'd be like, you took my son and my daughter, I'm going to come after your son, your other son, your daughter, and your puppy, okay? Like, I'm taking it to a whole nother level. And so, and so what we have going on here is lex talionis, or the law of retaliation, was to ensure that there was a level of justice without escalating the situation. Does that make sense? Which you could easily see happening. We've seen enough mafia movies to know this can happen. Okay? And so the lex talionis was here to basically ensure there was justice. And in fact, what's so interesting, which doesn't come out in English, but in the Hebrew, that term for actually means under. So when you see an eye for an eye, it actually means an eye under an eye. Okay? A tooth under a tooth. Which means, another way of saying is, it could only be one eye for one eye. It couldn't be any more. It was the maximum that someone could exact justice. And so the Gibeonites wisely ask for this lex talionis, what we know as lex talionis, a life for a life, and, for, and by asking for seven lives, maybe it was seven lives of the Gibeonites they were trading for, but it was more likely that they were saying, we know that seven is a complete number in Hebrew. And so with the seven lives, we would consider the, bet, the debt repaid in full. So they asked for these lives, and David, compelled by their request, hands over two sons and seven grandsons, but he is true to his word to Jonathan, and he spares Jonathan's son. What's interesting is it's hard to say whether, goodness gracious, how can the sons or the grandsons be responsible? Verse 1 does seem to indicate that it was Saul and his family that have blood guilt. And so some scholars believe that somewhere along the line, maybe, possibly, these sons or grandsons of Saul had something to do with what happened to the Gibeonites. We don't know for certain. But we do know that this was to be an act of justice, where David was enacting justice on behalf of the foreigners in his land, the Gibeonites, for what had happened to them. It was a gruesome fate for sure. And the story should have ended there. But the story goes on to this very interesting woman called Rizpah. Rizpah was a concubine in the house of Saul. Now, concubines were technically part of the family, but they really did not have a very high legal status. In fact, it was a very low legal status. By contrast, wives had claims to, to property. They were protected by law. They had a much higher position in the family hierarchy, but concubines didn't a very low status in the family hierarchy. 
And so, indeed, it's this woman of low-ish status, no rights and no claims to Saul's household, who actually acts passionately and boldly, and I could say who tries to act justly on behalf of Saul's family. She has no claims, but she goes out there after the seven sons are impaled, makes a tent of sackcloth, lives out in the wild, has to endure the elements, has to endure the gruesome sight of her family members that are hanging out there, chases away birds by day, chases away wild animals by night. You can just kind of picture this. Like, I barely have a hard time being in my backyard or in a tent, okay? <laughs> you can imagine the scenario of a woman being out in the wild, protecting. She, at the risk of her own life, not for a weekend, not for a week, a period until the next rainfall, which could have been all the way up to five months. It was probably sooner than that. But the scripture is telling us she was out here for a while, defending and acting in a way that she felt was right, considering the situation. This woman who has no legal claims in the household of Saul does all she can to honor the family and to create just out of the situation in her own eyes. This gets all the way back to David. David sees it. David is moved. And David, in return, honors the house of Saul by taking the bones of Saul and Jonathan along with the bones of those who, who were... Um, who were put to the stake there. And he brings them to a place of honor so they can all rest in the land of Benjamin. It's an incredible story. This unusual situation ends up in this appendix of David's reign. And it's very clear to me that the writer of 2 Samuel here is attempting to show the importance of justice in the life of God's people. Justice and only justice. Justice as paramount to our world, even the weather patterns of this world that cause famine. Justice in the face of genocide. Justice amidst some very gruesome circumstances. Justice amidst difficult decisions. Justice for a lowly concubine. A lowly concubine who honors the dead. I find that many people have a bit of a sense of justice. Justice is something that I believe God has uniquely placed into the hearts of humankind. I think it's part of being made in the image of God. We have this sense of justice even as young children. Because I remember as a young child that, that if Henry went twice and got two turns before I got one turn, there was a problem there, right? I was going to say something in school, okay? If, if Susie got two scoops of ice cream and I got one scoop of ice cream, we were all looking, hey, what's the problem here? Okay? At least give me some fudge and nuts, all right? <laughs> give me something. We have this sense of justice. We see it on TV. We see it in the movie all the time. Lots of movies about justice. Raise your hands if maybe you have seen these movies. Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. Yes? Yes. The Shawshank Redemption. That's a good one, huh? <laughs> Just Mercy. The Accused. Philadelphia, in the name of the Father, to kill a mockingbird. Selma, even my cousin Vinny has got <laughs> one of the bus justice in it. Okay. A few good men, runaway jury, 
The Firm, anything by John Grissom, it's about justice. Anything. We have seen justice over and over on the screen, in the movies, at home. It's all over social media. And that's because I believe inside each one of us is, is this little measure of, and seed of justice that I believe comes from being made in the image of God. It appeals to our inner sense of what is right. However, I have found in my own life, the older that I have gotten, sometimes I forget that measure of justice. And I have found and I see around me that sometimes people have that justice squelched inside of them. Sometimes they see so much injustice, they think it's never going to change. And that level of justice gets, gets, gets squelched inside of us. Some people find themselves going up against an uphill battle and it's just not worth it. Some people who lose their passion for justice, they just get caught up in the daily things of life and like, well, that's important, but you know, I got to take care of my business here. This happens a lot to us until we watch another movie about justice. <laughs> Let's become more familiar with justice. So growing up in the church, I heard a lot about love. I heard a lot about grace. I definitely heard a lot about sin and what I shouldn't be doing, right? Particularly as a student, right? I heard an awful lot about these topics, forgiveness, prayer, reading and studying the Bible. That, that I definitely remember from being a student and being a youth. Heard those stories over and over again. I heard very little about justice. Very little. In fact, you know where I heard justice and I got that word from? From my Sunday, not my Sunday, my Saturday morning cartoons. This is what I watched every Sunday, Saturday. Okay? I watched this. I saw, it wasn't the just, they were super friends. Okay? Super friends. However, you're, you're there. Okay? We have Superman and Wonder Woman, Batman and Aquaman and the Wonder Twins and Robin and there was like Hawkman and Green Lantern and there that kind of came in later. But do you know what that was behind them, the building they met? Do you know what, remember what was, it was the Hall of Justice. It was called the Hall of Justice, and that was my first interaction as a child with this idea of justice. I didn't hear it in church. <laughs> my first interaction was with the Justice League, which would later become the Justice League, but in this case, Super Friends. So did you know the Bible has 232 verses about faith? The Bible has 312 verses on love. The Bible has 123 verses about money. Okay? And the Bible has 135 verses on justice that use the word justice. But here's the kicker. In Hebrew, there are words that can be translated differently in meaning righteousness or justice. They're the same word. Okay? And so there's a couple Hebrew words, mishpat, which means justice, and it means justice in terms of a decision and judgment and measure. But there's also sedek. Sedek can be translated as justice or righteousness. And so when you take the words justice and righteousness in the Bible, righteousness is mentioned over 300 times. So when you put these two Hebrew words together, okay, and later translated into Greek, okay, when you put these two ideas together, you have over 400 occurrences of the word justice in the Bible. This book is a book of justice. And I am shocked that I did not hear this as a younger person. 
This is the book of justice. And, and, and to further take that, this idea of justice is connected to this word in Hebrew, shalom. You guys know shalom to mean peace. It means well-being. There's a sense of equilibrium, okay? To, to have shalom, you have to have equilibrium, just like you would see the scales of justice, right? There's a level of equilibrium. And so to have peace, there had to be a level of equilibrium in your relationships with others. It meant we wanted you to be peaceful, but it also was saying this, without justice, it's impossible to have peace. Another way of saying it is, while there is injustice, there is no peace. Shalom demands justice. The words for justice and righteousness, you can change them. You can actually use them interchangeably. Long before the super friends on Saturday morning was the word of God, which was the book of justice. Let's take a look. Now that I've told you about these passages, let's take a look at what they say. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officials throughout your tribes in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall render just decisions for your people. You must not distort justice. Here's the mishpat. Justice. You must not show partiality. You must not accept bribes, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Justice. Okay, Sedek, or righteousness, and only righteousness you shall pursue, so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Amos 5, 21 through 24. If you guys ever wonder, like, gosh, the, the, the minor prophets, the major prophets, they're, they're such downer books, it's hard to get to them because they don't have the great stories. Look at it through the lens of justice, and I guarantee you will see this, these books completely different. Amos 5, 21 through 24, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. That means worship services. I don't like your worship services, is what God is saying. I hate, uh, uh, where are we? Next slide, please. <laughs> Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, so whatever you bring here to church, and you may bring a lot of it, I will not accept them. And the offerings of your well-being, of well-being for your fattened animals, even though you give me the best of what you have, let me interpret that, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Okay, God's saying, I don't even want to hear reckless love right now. Okay? <laughs> I'm just putting it in modern day terms. I don't want to hear that song. I don't want to listen to the melody of your guitars, your harps, whatever it is. But here's what God would rather see. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's pretty serious, huh? I think God is saying rather than even be gathered here and whatever we do on Sunday morning, I take this to say God would rather see us execute justice. You guys know the famous, famous passage. Oh, so great. I remember this is a song, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O mortals, all you human beings, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As I was reading this, what struck me was require. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not a please. This is a requirement of God's people. God's people are required to execute justice. Jesus in the New Testament picks this up as well. Matthew 23. 23 through 24. Speaking to the religious. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. Okay, that's the idea of they're, they're tithing so well. They're tithing their spices from their garden. That's like us bringing salt and pepper here. Okay, all right, that's, I'm tithing. That's comedy, all right? Jesus is funny, all right? <laughs> but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. It is these you have have ought to have practiced without neglecting the other, you blind guides. Jesus is funny again. You should strain out the gnat, but swallow the camel. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy on That section in the prayer is a prayer of justice. God, the mercy and the grace and the justice that's in heaven, bring that down to earth. When Jesus also says, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. Jesus was basically saying, I have not come here to get rid of justice. Oh no, on the contrary. I have come to bring about justice, to fulfill justice in the law and accompany that with grace and mercy. What we see here throughout the scriptures is the word of God, the logos, is the source of justice of all this world. And if we call ourselves Christ of followers, if we call ourselves followers of the book, we must be people of justice. It is required from Micah 6. It is required. There's a story, a famous story of Mr. LaGuardia, Henry LaGuardia, the famous ex-mayor of New York. He was presiding at police court when a trembling old man came before him. He was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. The man came before Mr. LaGuardia and said, my family was starving. And the mayor said, well, I've got to punish you. Mr. LaGuardia said, the law makes no exception and I can do nothing but sentence you $10 for your fine. And after that, Mr. LaGuardia reached into his pocket, pulled out the $10, stuck it on the table. But it didn't end there. He took his famous oversized hat, put the $10 in it, and said, furthermore, I'm fining everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal bread to eat. He gives it. And he said, Bailiff, collect the fines and give it to the defendant. And this incredulous old man walked out of there with the light of heaven in his eyes with $47.50. And I say to us, what would our cities look like 
if we exacted justice and mercy like that on a daily basis? What would our cities look like? How different would our towns look? How different would our homes look? Sometimes I think about the own injustice in my own home that, my, that, that I as a father confess. How different would our homes look? How different would our communities look? How different would this nation look if we were people of justice? If we took seriously what the scriptures said. My nephew recently had an engagement party I had the chance to attend. A bunch of 20 and 30 year olds there. Some great conversations. Had a chance to talk. A lot of them had gone to church. Christian colleges. Broached the subject, hey, where are you going to church these days during COVID? Kind of going online and Several of them said, I don't go to church anymore. That was very sad. I said, could you tell me why? What would, what would compel you to come back to church? And do you know what they said to me? They said, I don't want to go back to church because they perceive churches as self-serving places where justice does not rule. They said that they're judgmental. And I wonder what actions would take on our part, to change this narrative. It struck me when they said the places, the churches are often perceived as unjust. That really struck me. And I asked myself, what would it look like if the people of generations understood this topic and made a change in our world and in our city and people started associating justice with this church? That church is a church of justice. That's a church right there that doesn't show partiality based on the color of your skin or your income level or your education or your status or your gender. It doesn't matter. This is a place where justice rules and justice reigns. A place where people are judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Yes, I've also dreamed that same dream. What if Generation continued its reputation in the ABC Unified School District, right? We're helping with transition-aged youth. That is fantastic. Let's continue to do that. What if we can make an even larger impact there? And, and there's other things that you're passionate about that help change the school district and help change this city. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. What if this church were known as the Church of Justice, the Hall of Justice, Alec, you could be Superman. Okay. You could be Gal Gadot. All right. And I could be Jason Momoa. Oh, no, only a man can dream. <laughs> I end with this. What are you going to do about justice? It's obvious the scriptures are the book of justice. I can argue and say this is the ultimate source of justice. There are some people here, maybe you're watching online, you might disagree with some of the things I've said today, that's fine. There are some people here who, who, who want to make change and will exact change but feel like, there's so little I can do. I'm so young, I don't know enough. What can I do? Because indeed, the size of injustice is the size of an elephant. It's big. There's a lot of wrongs to right in this world. 
But we all know how, to eat, how we eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. One small piece at a time. You may think your contribution doesn't do a lot, but it might. It just might be the spark. It just might be the little beginning of an avalanche of justice that happens. And, and what I find compelling in the story is the story of Rizpah. Not only did she act in a manner that she thought was just toward the situation, remember who she was. A lowly concubine of no status and no significance. But yet, her actions, her passion, her sense of justice spoke so loudly it got to the king. And it caused the king to change his actions. It caused and compelled the king to change. Yes, it might mean if you pursue justice, you may put yourselves in harm's way. You may have to have a tent over your head for five months. It may mean you may have to scrape for a little bit of food. It may mean you have to protect yourself out in the wild. It may mean that you have to fight off birds and fight off wild animals. They usually look like humans, okay? It may mean you need to do that. And you're thinking at some point in time, maybe like me, that what difference can I make? But the beautiful narrative of this story is it can make a difference. And to get to the rose of justice, you're going to have to deal with the thorns that prick and bleed. But the rose is there, and the rose is quite beautiful. Yesterday was June 19th. Otherwise known as Juneteenth. How ironic that months and months ago, it just turns out that God ordained this passage to be the same passage over this weekend. You just can't make this stuff up, okay? You absolutely cannot. 156 years ago yesterday, this weekend, Union troops marched into Galveston, Texas to free the remaining slaves of the South. Some slaves were unaware that they were free. They just were unaware. Some owners refused to obey until compelled by the troops. Some owners just said, I was just trying to get through one more harvest and then we were going to comply. This statement of justice, I actually found the original writing. I don't know if it's hard to see on the screen. This is what it looks like. It reads on the upper right, Headquarters, District of Texas, Galveston, Texas, June 19, 1865. On the left here, General Orders, number three. If you can read that, you have really good eyes. I'll try to read it from my copy. <laughs> the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. And I love this next part. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection, therefore, existing between them becomes that of employer and hired labor. This was intended to be a statement of justice. All men, women, people of all backgrounds, education, they are indeed free. Those who were slaves are free. 
I'm reminded that according to this book, which is a book of justice, this book also said I was a slave. And I look back at my own life, yeah, I was. Sometimes I still act like it. Some days I'm not aware there was an emancipation proclamation and I'm still living two and a half years later like a slave. We were slaves to sin, slaves to our addiction, slaves to our insecurities, slaves to our bitterness, slaves to our materialism, slaves to paralysis. We were slaves in every possible way. And this cross, this cross of justice and mercy is what set us free. This book tells you you're free in Christ. You are free indeed. But our freedom also requires us to pursue justice, to pursue justice wherever we're at, around us, in this church, in this city, and in this world. We who are slaves, who are the recipients of injustice, we receive the ultimate justice from God. God who didn't even spare His Son, His standard was so high, who said, I can't be around sin. That justice plane never changed, but instead enacted mercy and said, I will send myself and my son to die for you and me. I will exact the measure of justice which is needed, but I will show love and mercy to a lost and broken world so loved by God. So let us be little Christians, whatever the cost. Let's not to come to abolish the law, but let us fulfill the law. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for this incredible story. Written as a bit of an appendix, Lord, where would we be without this story? It's very clear that long ago you directed writers to pen this story so that we could learn and read about justice. Let justice roll down is what your word says. And Lord, as we sing and as we worship and we get a chance to take part in communion, move our hearts, move our minds, move our spirit that we might be more like your son Jesus. And today as we're challenged by your word that we would be people of justice. We pray all these things. In the name of Christ, amen. We're going to end our service with a time of worship, and we're also going to end with some communion. If you had an opportunity to get one of our little communion cups, wafer cups, if you don't have it right now and you want to raise your hand, I'm sure somebody will get it to you. Thank you.